part of the gospel is not just that you get saved, but it's that you're transformed. Like you're liberated, yes, from the penalty of sin, but also from the power of sin in your life now. You do not have to be enslaved to porn anymore. You do not have to sleep with your girlfriend. You do not have to sleep with your boyfriend. You do not have to give in to your, your attraction to someone that you know God's word says not to give in to. You do not have to gossip anymore. You don't have to lie anymore. You don't have to steal anymore. You don't have to do it. Romans 6 says you're dead. You're not who you used to be, so you don't have to do what you used to do. You're alive in Christ. Somewhat anxious, always authentic. This is Real Life Loading. I'm your host, Shelby Abbott. And even though this is a podcast, I want to come alongside you as a friend and help you walk closely with God in the humor and hardship of life. Today's really cool because I'm talking with a longtime friend of mine, Garrett Kell. Garrett and I met back in college when I was a young Christian. I'd been a Christian for like maybe three years, and Garrett hadn't become a Christian quite yet. At the time, he was deep into the party scene, drinking, smoking weed, and sleeping around. He was also addicted to porn, but as you'll hear, God met him and absolutely transformed his life. He's a pastor now in Northern Virginia, and he's even written a book called Pure in Heart, Sexual Sin, and the Promises of God. I endorse that book, and I recommend it often to tons of young people who are wrestling with sexual addictions in our current hyper-sexualized culture. Today, we're going to talk about how purity is not about rules, but about a relationship, and what Garrett means when he uses the phrase, sin always hides the price tag. I think you'll love this conversation with my friend, Garrett Kell. So, Garrett, I remember the first time I actually met you, you were in a Waffle House in Panama City Beach, Florida, and you were stoned. You were high. Very high. Do you remember that moment? I do. Um, I had uh, had a friend who had witnessed to me uh, when I was at college, and I, the Lord was working on me, and... A different buddy asked me to go to spring break with him. And I said, no, nah, I think, I don't think I should go. God's, I feel like God's been following me around. He's like, no, nah, it's going to be cool. Let's go. I said, all right. So we went to Panama City, went down the whole way down. I'm talking zero off about God and stuff. He's like, man, you need to chill out. And uh, we drive in and this plane flies over with a big banner behind it that says, uh, you know, God saves. I was like, look, dude, God's following me around. And he's, <laughs> he's like, nah, we go to the hotel, get some beer, go out, sit on the on the uh, the beach, and these people come up to me, and they say, hey, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And I was like, oh, yeah? And proceed to share the gospel with me, and uh, they walk off, and I look at my buddy. I was like, look, God's following me around. He's like, no. And uh, we go back to the hotel room. So I smoked some weed, and we were hungry, so we went to the Waffle House. And sitting in there, and I'm feeling super convicted. I had been reading the Bible a lot, and I was feeling really, really guilty. And I told him, I was like, man, I feel so guilty right now. I should not have done that. He's like, dude, you need to stop doing drugs. And I was like, no, God's following me around. <laughs> and then sure enough, uh, the doors to the Waffle House open, and all these people come in carrying Bibles and sitting all around. And you walk over, and you said, hey. And I said, hey. And you said, do you go to Virginia Tech? And I said, yeah. And then you asked me if I went to a particular church. I think you saw me there or something like that. Yeah. And I said, yeah. And then you introduced yourself. You said, my name's Shelby. And uh, 
how about we exchange information? And when we get back from spring break, I'd love to yeah get together and let's talk about what God's doing and read the Bible. And I gave you my information. You walked away and I looked at my buddy and he goes, dude, God is following you around. <laughs> <laughs> and it was true. And, you know, it's amazing just to watch his providence. And uh, yeah. Yeah. I remember getting together with you for lunch once we did get back to campus at Taco Bell. Taco Bell. Yes. I was like, yeah, there's a magical, magical restaurant. <laughs> a there. lot of magic happened. A lot of magic happens. <laughs> Taco Bell. But those were life changing. I mean, I didn't know anything about the Bible and I just knew that God had changed my life. Yeah. You, you helped me and I'm, I'm grateful for it, brother. Yeah. It's been incredible to see your story and what God has done in your life. I was not carrying a Bible when I walked into the Waffle House. Maybe somebody else was, but I, I was not carrying like it in one of those like containers with a handle on with it, a, fanny it pack like, or a little something. mini suitcase. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure some of my recollections a little bit hazy, but the Holy Spirit helped me to remember that you showed up and God used you. So that's what I'm thankful for. <laughs> my mind's eye is a little bit more clear when it comes I, to that. Probably so. Probably so. Uh, when it comes to you and your personality, what's one true thing about you that people would never guess? Something my kids never get over is uh, that I've been engaged three times. Um, they're like, you're engaged three times? I'm like, <laughs> yeah. And then they're like, daddy's life was a mess. And uh, the Lord did a lot through that. Yeah, well, uh, that's true. I mean, we're all a mess. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, but speaking of that, something that you struggled with in the past was an addiction to porn. And God has freed you from that. And you actually wrote a book about sexual sin called Pure in Heart. So in that book, one of the things you said is that purity, which this is a hot button word today, purity. It is. Purity yeah. can't be reduced to a pledge to keep your pants on, which you're very good at a turn of phrase. I love that. So why is that so important for young people to understand today when sexual sin is so common and seemingly impossible to defeat? Yeah, I think it's just easy to just set up a bunch of rules and just you keep the rules for the rules sake, right? And then the end is that you can say, hey, you know, I didn't didn't mess around with my boyfriend or girlfriend or, you know, we didn't do this or we didn't do that. And it changes the goal from what God wants the goal to be, right? So Jesus says in Matthew 5, 8, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. So God seems to think that purity of heart, which will then produce purity of life, that the reason you do that, it's a means to an end. Mm -hmm. The end is that you get to see God. Like, so God says, I'm the great treasure. And the reason that you're going to say no to even urges and desires, it can be really good. Like, so sex is not wicked. It's not an evil thing. Uh, inherently, God gave it as a good gift for husband and wife to enjoy. So when you have desires for somebody that you care about, it makes a lot of sense. But God says, there's a way that you need to steward those desires that's going to help you to see me and understand what I have for you. So when the rule is, okay, you know, like we've been talking about the purity culture, right? So let's put a ring on and you promise to not sleep with anybody until you get married. And everybody says, I do. Now, listen, that's, I think there's a lot of well-intended people leading that and probably well-intended people doing that. But what happens is you walk out of there and one of two things happens. Either A, you give in and you sin. And then what comes with it is the cloak of shame. To where now do you take the ring off? Like, or, or is it constantly, is this badge just a reminder that you're a failure and then Satan will blackmail you to death, right? And then you're just going to hide stuff. Or you keep your pledge and then you strut around like, hey, look who, who did this, right? And everybody else is a, you know, a hoochie or whatever. And, like, and you start looking down on others and looking up at you. And again, the focus and all of that is not the Lord. Yeah. Like 
purity is a means to an end. It's not an end in itself. So that's, that's why I said that, you know, I mean, so now to hear me, keep your pants on until you get married, right? So there, that yes, we should obey. <laughs> true, right. Obedience is a good thing. We want to do that, but you can't just reduce it to just do's and don'ts. God wants our heart, yeah. That's great. And if you frame it that way of like, it's a means to an end of knowing God, that's a different perspective completely. And it doesn't become about the rules. It becomes about the relationship. Right. Because then I obey and I resist because I love him. Right. And if I do sin, I know where to run. I run to him because he loves me. So whether we sin or we don't, I'm not minimizing sin, but whether we do or we don't, he's still the goal. And it's about receiving grace from him in the midst of it all. Um, you have commonly posted online phrases like sin hides the price tag. Yeah. What do you mean by that? And can you give me an example? Uh, how about I give you an example and then tell you what I mean? So good. the other day I was sitting in my truck and so I was just, I parked and I was just scrolling, looking at some stupid videos um, and somebody had posted something that was pretty sensual. And so I, I scrolled back away from it. And in that moment, my flesh wants to look right? My flesh wants to say, was that really what I thought it was? And I wonder if there's a link there because what else might be there, right? And so sin promises, hey, listen, you've had a long week. Things are tough. You you kind of deserve a little retreat. It's been a long time. And, you know, you're in a good place right now. So you, you can handle just a little nibble. And so it's going to promise things to you, right? And the fact is, it would be enjoyable for a minute. Um, that's why we don't have to tell people to sin is because there's something about sin that's enjoyable, right? So in the moment, it would be enjoyable until like 20 minutes later when my wife calls and she's like, hey, what have you been doing? Uh, Or how's your morning? And then it all begins. Am I going to lie? Am I going to like, and then sin never tells you about all that. Like it just always hides the guilt, the shame, the consequences, the all of that, right? It hides it. So what I did in that moment instead was I texted my wife and said, hey, just want to let you know, I was feeling a little tempted this morning, didn't look at anything, but but I was tempted, pray for me. Copied that and sent it to my three buddies, uh, Chris, Jason, um, and Ben, and said, hey, just shared this with Carrie, wanted you to know, if you got any questions, let me know. Wow. So what I did was I stabbed it in the throat, because uh, even though I didn't sin, I confessed my temptation, and what it did was I pulled the price tag right out in front, and I'm like, I know you're lying to me. I'm on the hook for something here if I give in, and you know, that's an example. That's what I mean. Sin is never going to show you what it's going to cost you, whether it be personal peace with Jesus or whether it be relational fallout or whatever it may be. It's never going to tell you that. I mean, what did Satan say in the garden, right? You will not surely die. He's always lied. It's the same trick. He never. He's pretty unoriginal. Yeah, it's just packaged in different ways. Now, someone might be listening to this and hearing that and going, wow, I don't have anybody in my life who I could text something like that to. So most of the average person who's listening to this is not married. So they're not going to send that text immediately. They're just in the context of living a single life. They're in college, maybe just a young professional. What would you give advice to that person who maybe doesn't have three trusted friends that they could send a text message to? First thing I want to resonate with that. So it wasn't for me until I was probably 25 that I learned how important it was to have like intentionally intrusive relationships with people <laughs> yeah. that I trust, you know, like yeah. people who have permission slips to ask me anything, anytime, you That's know? Good. Yeah. Um, so I think first thing you want to do is if you hear that, 
I think you should say, is that from God's word? Like, is that sort of community important? Because just because it's something I do that I, you know, is a part of my life doesn't mean you should do it. I think you should go to the Word and say, is that real? And I think when you read through the Bible, you'll see that sort of community is expected. I mean, the book of Hebrews, uh, there's a lot in there about that sort of community. So I think you'll see it's in the Word. Second thing you need to do is ask the Lord. Like the Lord, he's a good father and he wants good for you. And it's going to be good for you to have those kinds of friendships. So I think you should pray. Say, Lord, I need friends. Like I need a good friend. And then I think you... Hopefully, you're part of a church community where you're known. If not, I'd say become a member of a gospel-preaching, healthy church, one that both proclaims the gospel and then also lives it out, and go to the pastor and say, hey, listen, this may sound weird to you, but like, I'm trying to walk with God, and I don't have anybody in my life right now who can really ask me hard questions, and I think I need that. And his job is to help you find somebody to do that. Maybe not do it himself, but help you find somebody who can. Sure. So typically it wouldn't be, but he should know somebody like right now, if somebody walked in and said that to me, I'd have, you know, 10 or 15 people that I could think of be like, thank you so much. That's really courageous of you to come in here and say that. Yeah. Proud of you. That means God's working your life. Let's celebrate that. And now let me see if I can connect you with somebody for lunch and let's see what the Lord does. And yeah, that'd be some of the steps. Yeah, that's great. I always said too to like college students in particular is like you need someone who loves you and is annoying enough to get up in your face and ask you difficult questions. Yep. Questions that you would be initially like, that's offensive. It's kind of abrasive against the skin when you feel that. But then recognizing, looking back, oh, these are the people who actually care about me. They care about me enough not to just get allow me to give the pat answers, the fake answers. Yep. Yeah. Those people aren't your enemy. They're your friend. Exactly. Yeah. In the context of love, yeah, which you've already mentioned before. In the context, it has to be. And now it's time for Best of, Worst of on Real Life Loading. We'll get back to my time with Garrett in just a second, but this is where I share with you my opinions about some of the best and worst things in specific categories. Let's begin with the best ofs. As of this recording, the three best MCU movies are... Captain America, Winter Soldier, Spider-Man, No Way Home, and Avengers Endgame. In that order, one, two, three. I know a new Marvel movie comes out like every other Tuesday, but those are the three best in my opinion. Next, the best ways to drink soda. We'll start with the third best way, from a can. Now, this has a tendency to get warmer quicker, and you could spill it if you knock it over because the can is permanently open. But drinking soda from a can is is actually pretty good. Even better, the second best way is from a plastic bottle. Advantages here are that, duh, there's more of it in the bottle. But you can put the cap back on and drink more of it later in the day without losing the fizz. This is the plastic bottle's best quality, I think. And frankly, the one that I use most often. And the number one way to drink soda, yes, it's from a glass bottle. There's something so classic and sophisticated about drinking out of a glass bottle. I feel like a grown-up and a kid all at the same time. True, there's usually less soda in the glass bottle, but the fact that you have to crack it open with a bottle opener in order to drink it, come on. That's just always cool. Now on to the worst ofs. I'm going to flip it here and do something odd. I'm going to go with the three worst things to admit that you low-key love. So I'm not saying these things are bad. I'm just saying that it might be bad to admit that you actually don't think that they're bad at all. In fact, I low-key love them. 
So here are the worst things to admit that you kind of love. The Jonas Brothers, watching WWE wrestling, and ordering a hot chocolate at a bougie coffee shop. I could elaborate on all three of those things, but I think you know what I'm talking about. This has been Best of, Worst of on Real Life Loading. Now, let's get back to my time with Garrett Kell. We're going to talk about the difference between guilt and grief in the context of sexual sin, following God's design for love, and what it practically means to live out our freedom in Christ. Let's get back into it. I think when it comes to sexual sin in general, there's a lot of guilt that comes with it or shame. You've already brought this up. And I found that guilt is a, is a bad motivator when it comes to the pursuit of sexual purity. But if we're honest, most Christians, you say, are really more concerned about feeling guilty about our sin than being grieved by our sin. Yeah. Um, what's the difference between guilt and grief, and why should I care about the difference? Yeah, that's good. So three categories. One would be, first of all, there, there's a guilt that's real that is condemning. So if you're in sin and you're not repentant uh, and, and you're separated from Christ, then you are condemned before God. You're guilty already. You're condemned. When you come to Christ, you are forgiven of that, and there's no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, you can feel guilt for sin in a way that's appropriate, but if it's just merely, I feel bad about what happened, um, and it's very horizontal, like, I can't believe I did this again, or I let somebody down, or whatever, that's very horizontal. Mm -hmm. Something happens, though, when it's vertical, and you realize, I've grieved God, <laughs> and because I've grieved God, that grieves me, right? So we're commanded to not grieve the Holy Spirit, uh, Ephesians 4 tells us. And what that means is it's a very personal word. God dwells within us, and we should not want to hurt our relationship with him. Mm -hmm. So for me, the more that we can frame the whole conversation about resisting sexual temptation around the category of, I love God, and I want to love him more purely because he's loved me so much, and we can frame it around relationship, I think, I mean, like that's, in dealing with my wife or my kids, I want my relationship to be... I love you, so that's why I'm doing this or not doing this. Not just like I'm going to feel bad if I, you know, I'm gonna be, I'm feel bad if I don't take you out on a date, honey. So I'm going to go. I'm like <laughs> yeah. what? Like that's not that's, that's not the kind of motivation. It's pretty cold. But if I if it's this is going to grieve you because you love me and I love you, right? I mean, so I, I think a relationship centered pursuit of holiness is essential. Right. That's great. And it's not something that often comes with when we're thinking about purity, sexual purity in particular. It's more about behavior modification as opposed to viewing the relationship beyond why we do what we do and don't do what we don't do. Yeah, 100%. I mean, that's what changed for me. And I feel like that was one of the major forks in the road for me that changed everything. Because I understood that God has done everything for me to know him. And... For whatever reason, in this area, it just becomes so robotic in regards to what I'm going to do and not do. And it was just so atheistic in one sense. Yeah. But when it became like, this is about the Lord, it helped. It didn't fix everything, but it, it helped to color it in the right sort of light that warms the affections in the right direction rather than just, I'm going to do life different. Like, that's just not going to last. Yeah. So when it comes to like couples who are dating, so not yet engaged, not married, certainly, um, you say that 
true love never does anything to harm another person's relationship with God, mm-hmm. which when you think about that, you're like, oh, that's, that's, that's pretty deep. You say that love leads people toward Jesus, not away from him. So today we've seen and understand what is meant by the phrase, love is love. But you say, it's actually not true. Why is love not love? I think we know what people mean when they say love is love, right? And if not, we should ask them, say, hey, when you say love is love, what what do you mean by that? And I think we need to ask, where did you get that from? Um, And even kind of, you want to learn more about them and how they arrived at some of their conclusions and say, um, you know, one of the things that I think is pretty interesting that I learned is that um, God is love. And because of that, he gets to define what, what love really is. Would you be interested in hearing about that? So if I'm just having a conversation with somebody, I might try to to go in that way. Um, love is not love simply because we say it is. God is love, and therefore he gets to determine what love is. He's the creator, right? So if I make something and then I put it out there and I'm like, this is what it is, but then somebody comes and says, no, it's something else. I'm like, that's not what it is, right? So you can't just redefine it. Mm-hmm. Because um, oftentimes we reduce love to affection, to um, care about someone, to compassion, to all of the of feelings that are appropriate. They're good things. We're creating God's image, so it makes sense that we can experience them. But true love is going to help someone know God more. Hmm. True love is going to help somebody to walk with God. So if I'm dating somebody and we feel deep affections for one another, and we want to express that, we got to first of all say it makes sense that that's there. But it's not actually loving of me to say, well, therefore, let's do what God says we should not do, because for us, it's different. We're special. Like, you know, um, we're married in our in our hearts and all that kind of stuff. Like, But God says that's not true. So either either we're right or God's right, and we need to, this is where we need to be humble and say, well, God, teach me then. How do I steward this? So we've got to know what what love is. And this is where we're going to go back to the source of the one who made it, the one who gave it, and see that he actually has really good, wise designs that are aimed for greater pleasure and greater intimacy than we could often settle for with, with these other supposed loves. Yeah, so good. So this gets into a little bit to what my next question is. Like, when, we, when we start talking about sexual purity, there's a temptation to label it as legalism or people being prudish or whatever which obviously makes most of us recoil when we hear that term legalism. But you say that striving for holiness is not legalism. You say that it's worship. What do you mean by that? Yeah, uh, I mean, if somebody says, well, that's legalism, first I'd want to ask them, what do you mean by legalism? So again, I think we're in a day where people like to use words and they don't know what they mean, you know? Uh, So let's (laughs) tell me what you mean by legalism. And I think sometimes people mean you're telling me to do something I don't want to do. Okay. Or you have a standard that you're telling me I need to live up to. And I don't think that's legalism necessarily. It may be. Um, So I think we need to try and define what is legalism. So I just think when we look at the scriptures, what Jesus is calling to says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Like that's not legalism. It's love. Right. If somebody says they love me, but do not obey me, they're a liar, is what the Apostle John says of our relationship with Jesus. So That's heavy. That It's totally heavy, but just because it's heavy doesn't mean we should automatically label it as something that's oppressive or destructive or unloving. 
life is not just all happy, happy. <laughs> like we need to be convicted of sin. Like the best thing God can do is show us himself. And when that happens, Isaiah says, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. and I live among a people of unclean lips because my eyes have seen the Lord, right? It's not like Isaiah was like, hey, good to be here, you know? Like, no, <laughs> like the <laughs> Lord, he's like, you're not like me and there's no reason for me to be in your presence. So I just want to say, don't run away from stuff that's uncomfortable. What you need to ask is if it's true. And that needs to guide us. Did God say it? Right. Yeah. So merely keeping rules for rules sake and for the applause of people and to jump through religious hoops and check boxes, like the religion of the check boxes, that's an empty, empty, empty pursuit. There's nothing there. But a walk with God where you love him and because of that, you're going to obey him. That's biblical Christianity. That's what Jesus calls us to. It's actually part of the gospel is not just that you get saved, but it's that you're transformed. Like you're liberated, yes, from the penalty of sin, but also from the power of sin in your life now. You do not have to be enslaved to porn anymore. You do not have to sleep with your girlfriend. You do not have to sleep with your boyfriend. You do not have to give in to your, your attraction to someone that you know God's word says not to give in to. You do not have to gossip anymore. You don't have to lie anymore. You don't have to steal anymore. You don't have to do it. Romans 6 says you're dead. You're not who you used to be, so you don't have to do what you used to do. You're alive in Christ. Like that's not legalism to call somebody to freedom. Like we wouldn't say that about slaves who are set free. Hey, you're free. Go. Oh, that's legalism. What? No, that's liberty. We're alive. <laughs> Run. Here we go. You know, so I, th I think we just want to be careful to not push something away just because it, it requires something deep of us. Yeah. And you, you even mentioned in your book, like nobody, it's not legalistic to say, hey, keep breathing air, keep eating food. Like that's not legalistic at all to strive even to know and obey God. Yeah. It's not legalistic if you view it from that perspective. It's just that we've been taught for so long and kind of our sinful nature plays into that as well, along with the enemy of just helping us to see it from a, a totally wrong angle. Yeah. Reading and praying will not make you more godly, but you will not become more godly unless you read and pray. Yeah. So, you know, it's why are we doing what we're doing? And again, this is where I want to know the Lord. I want to draw closer yeah. to him. If that's your goal, like... Blessed to the pure in heart because they're going to see God. This is why I'm going to resist sin. It's because I don't want to. I don't want to miss Him. I want to know Him all the more. Yeah, it's beautiful. Um, well, I like to end our time with this question. Um, since we are real life loading dot dot dot, we're living in the the loading part. We don't know exactly what's going to happen. I think a great illustration of that is your phone when you get a text message and you get those three dots on your phone. So as you think about that, what's the most nervous you've ever been? when you've gotten the three dots on your phone, whether it be excited, nervous, or like terrified, nervous? <laughs> well, my wife, I have permission to share this. My wife is a little bit of a dramatic texter. So <laughs> she'll text something like, oh my goodness, call me. I can't believe this is happening. I'm like, what is this? And I'll call and she'll be like, the toilet's clogged or something like that. So she'll, <laughs> she knows like I'm pretty busy during the day. And there's some times that I will kind of just look over texts, but she will drama text me in order to get me to be like, what happened? And she's like, well, the toilet's clogged. <laughs> You know, so <laughs> she knows how to, she knows how to get me. Yeah. Reminds, reminds me of Michael Scott saying like, uh, you texted 911, like what is going on? He goes, I realized that if I don't text 911 at the end of every one of my message, nobody will respond. To me. <laughs> <laughs> That's fact. That's a fact. Maybe you should share that with your wife. You're I like, will. I'll tell I'm going to start not buying it. <laughs> <laughs>
I've known Garrett for a long time, and I'm so thankful that I've been able to see how God has used him and then will continue to use him in so many incredible ways. If you're interested in hearing more from him, you can check out Garrett's book, Pure in Heart. And if this episode with Garrett Kell was helpful for you, I'd love for you to share today's podcast with a friend. And wherever you get your podcasts, it could really advance what we're doing with Real Life Loading if you'd rate and review us. And it's powerfully easy to find us on our social channels. Just search for Real Life Loading or look for our links in the show notes. I want to thank everyone who's on the Real Life Loading team, Josh, Bruce, Caitlin, Jarrett, and Chloe. I'm Shelby Abbott. I'll see you back next time on Real Life Loading. Real Life Loading is a production of Family Life, a crew ministry, helping you pursue the relationships that matter most.